I am Daniel Hughes and welcome to Music 101. Music 101 is created to empower music itself and legendary music icon in the industry. And today I have my special guest. He is the author of several books and of course a composer to no other than Mr. Sean B.W. Parker. Hi there, Daniel. Good, good, good to be on here with you. Yes, Mr. Sean, and welcome to Music 101. Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I, I'm uh, Sean. I'm a, I'm a writer and an artist, a uh, uh, musician, um, and uh, I've um, written eight books, which uh, we've talked about in the past. And I've, but I'm also the uh, author of um, six albums, uh, and about four kind of compilations, which are considered albums in these days. So I'm also a musician. I don't do it as much anymore these days because um, it's a part of my sort of artistic past. But I'm still very, very passionate about the subject of music and um, happy, happy to talk about it for sure. Definitely, indeed, Mr. Sean. So how did you first become interested in composing music? Um, I think it was probably um, at, at the end of the 80s when I was uh, a teenager and um, I, I pr pr pretty much discovered the music of uh, The Cure and uh, Prince and sort of Talking Heads all at the same sort of time and um, became enraptured with, I guess, what is now called art rock um, and the music of um, The Cure, um, like, for example... Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me album, and The Cure in Orange uh, video, which is an amphitheater in France, just incredibly powerful to me and um, took me to this mystical place at that age, sort of 14, 15. And then uh, uh, Prince was doing his own very unique thing over in America, like between pop and rock and um, sort of uh, hip-hop or funk, and just putting all those together in this magic way of his and also he was on the sign of the times in about 1987-8. So it's that area era of the late 80s where to a young man like me growing up in, in sort of South Wales, these incredibly exotic, interesting sounds from individual artists was just inspiring to music and to writing. And so I started to, to write songs on my brother's guitar because uh, he'd learned first, then I learned. Um, and just started to put the poetry that I was already writing to the music. So both of those forms weren't different to me. They're all the same thing. What influences or inspire you in your music? Well, yeah, um, these guys that I was just talking about. And also Mr. David Bowie cannot be underestimated. You know, I've... Um, I'm an expert in his catalogue. I've bought all of his records. So I discovered him at sort of uh, 17 in depth. Like he'd had a couple of hits that everybody knew, Let's Dance and Space Oddity, big songs. But then when I was sort of 17, I um, was introduced mm -hmm. to him by uh, for friends who were intense, intensely into music. And I discovered Ziggy Stardust and 
the Berlin tr uh, trilogy and a whole new depth to music because he'd become a pop uh, icon by the time I knew him and kind of passed that. But his earlier stuff in the 70s was true, or the origins of art rock and by this late 60s, you know, he'd done every single phase, but to a depth of in in intensity, completely different from anything I'd heard. And that remains the case now. There's no one who's done what he did. And I don't know if they'll be able to do it again, really. Mr. Bowie. How do you approach the process of composing a new piece of music? Um, I, as I do with the writing um, and the paintings I do, it's a process of sort of synthesis where um, I've got some chord changes around on the guitar or on the piano, which are intriguing to me and I want to keep. So I, I kind of repeat those those chord changes until they're natural in the wrist as such. So it's like a muscle memory, which goes, that works, that works, yes, and that's how that works. Um, and then you want to create something more with it, like a song, basically. So I've always got lots of lyrics and, and ideas around. I put them together, kind of in the past, I would do it by handwriting, but now I'll do it either handwriting or typing on a laptop. And um, you um, sculpt these ideas that you have, like a verse, onto the chord structures that you've um, sculpted together. So you, that it starts, and it's a beautiful process when you enjoy it, when you, when you really get something out of it, beautiful process of discovery putting those words to the music and it becomes its own new thing, which is called a song. And But I'm always committed to making that thing as different as I can, not to shock the audience. I'm not that kind of an artist, but to intrigue intrigue them. So, Mr. Sean, how do you choose the instruments or sounds that you use in your compositions? Um, I would usually go with the guitar um, the, the things that I've done have uh, usually come from the guitar because of the energy that instrument um, embodies. It has this different energy to a piano, which is the other very expressive thing for anybody in pop rock. And um, the piano is, it can be so much more intricate and very beautiful. Um, but if you're not very good on it, it can be a bit clunky. But with a guitar, um, it's not about being good or bad. It's about being expressive. And that's why it's such a good punk instrument if you're into punk and um yeah i it would usually be either of those two where you start start to express and basically when it's slow and rather reflective it might give itself towards the piano and um, when it's upbeat the guitar because you want that punk energy but to give the reinvention you should absolutely um, exchange these two for each other because that would then bring something else you should always think outside the box each time that you make something like this. What are some challenges you face in your career as a composer? Um, I, uh, as, a, as a boy, when I was starting to do um, the songwriting and then getting into grunge bands and things like that, um, uh, you would observe the kind of music press and how to do this. And the people around me were ambitious in their own way. They weren't necessarily societally desperate, which is what punk came from. Um, they were more, um, okay, let's do this for now. And then I'm going to go off and become an electronic engineer somewhere else. So you tend to lose people along the way um, to the mainstream. 
I suppose. Um, and then I went to art school where I didn't touch music for a couple of years, just in order to um, kind of commit to, to painting. Um, so then I was standing in my own way, but it's only because I was doing something else to get another area of creativity going. Um, so throughout the process, it's been the commitment of other people has always been an issue, I suppose, but that's fine because it just means you go back onto your own resources and you trust your own vision um, and hope that other people get it as they do in time. Um, and then in the industry, as we came into this century, everything started to look very, very formulaic. Um, to be in a band, you needed to do certain things, you needed to say certain, certain things in certain ways, have, have a PR, uh, all about marketing and not so much about content. And I quickly realized I wouldn't be able to do that and I wasn't interested in doing that because it's not interesting for the art. So um, that coincided with the start of the internet uh, revolution. So the first album I sort of published in 2005 was online on Ingroove's records. It was called Istanbul. And um, everything's been online since then. There's a couple of uh, CD options that people can do, but I don't have some... I don't have the 80 million kind of copies of Michael Jackson's Thriller. It's not <laughs> It's not how it works anymore. You know, it's much about the on-demand. And that's in a really exciting place now. Yes, very well said, Mr. Sean. But before we go on, I want to shout out uh, for the people listening. I want to shout out to the people listening in Canada. Because in Canada, in British Columbia... I get 68% audience here, Saskatchewan at 18%, Alberta at 10%, Ontario at 2%, Quebec at 1%, Nova Scotia at 1%, and last but not the least, New Brunswick at 1%. Thank you, Canada, for supporting this podcast, because this podcast is created in power music itself, and legendary icon in the music industry, like Mr. Sean E.W. Parker. <laughs> so, Mr. Sean, how do you overcome creative blocks or moments of frustration? Hmm. Um, hello, Canada, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, I... Like with the writing, I am very blessed <laughs> when it comes to creative blocks. I don't get them because I, I, I think the habit I've got is um, I, as I go about the world, I ha have a notebook and ideas that I get, I put them in that notebook in order that they don't fly away because they do. So I write them down. It's it's a it's a trick that I that I, that I learned early, and um, I've got millions of notebooks from this. And then when you get a chance later on, um, you don't come with a I need some inspiration thing. You just go to the notebook and start putting things together. So if there's a there's a blank page in front of you, you go well what was in that book, you write that down, put something next to it. And before you know it, something's starting to unfold in front of you. And the gift of memory is that with, with the composing itself, um, pick up the guitar and there are the chords that you've learned by memory, by if it's powerful enough, it will probably stick with you. And if it hasn't done, it might not be powerful enough. So, um, and to try to remember them, you just, Perhaps you go to a reference of a different song as a comparison. Like that's a bit like Heroes or something. So you'll say, and sort of Heroes as a working title, and then but before you know it, it's gone on that into its own thing, and it's very exciting when that starts to happen. 
Mr. Sean, what advice do you have for aspiring composer? Yeah, just just like for the um for the aspiring writer is to keep it real, speak in your own voice. Um, it's good for people in music more than writing to copy in the early days to learn other people's stuff. Um, is a good way to get good at your art, uh, the skills of it especially, and the craft of songwriting, which are good classical skills. They don't always have to be the same, but it's okay to copy early bands because then you work out your own voice and what you could do. And like, I love that song. Let's play that song now. What about my own uh, version of that song? That's a really healthy thing to do. So good to copy, but then push yourself further, understand there's an art behind what you're doing and not to be afraid of trying it. You can always try stuff with creativity. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You haven't lost anything and you're much more likely to gain. That's what I would say. How has your music evolved over the time? Um, in, in the in the early days, um, the the, um, the necessity and the desire was to keep things simple because the ability wasn't there to be complex. And um, uh, The Cure, for example, um, were very good at doing simplistic uh, chords and structures. So it was all, but with an incredible depth of emotional <laughs> the feeling underneath it. Um, the, the songs are deceptively simple. Uh, people don't realise that about bands like The Cure. They just think that apply, sort of applies to punk things. But um, things kept simple is how rock and, rock and roll works best. But then as you get on and get later, you know that the depth of songwriting and interesting structures that don't look particularly showy, because that's not good, um, things that are accidentally complex are very, very beautiful. Like the interesting parts of Elton John are actually extremely complicated. You just don't think it because it's so used to it in the ear. And that is a trick of, of songwriting, which gets better as you get older and better as an artist. Um, I, I get concerned about success because when an act gets successful, they tend to repeat what's kind of made them successful. And that's a big fear. And it, that's how it should, should be for any artist. And the PR guys are saying, do that again, do that again. That's a big risk for art, as far as I'm concerned, including in music. Do you have a favorite piece that you have composed? And if so, why? Oh, that's, that's a dangerous question, Daniel. That's like, who's your favorite, <laughs> your favorite child? Um, <laughs> of my own, I think it's probably a song called Skin Match Version, uh, which I recorded in... 2012 with Scorpio Rising in Istanbul and it's my favourite because we were all in a, in the studio together and it's not often that you get to do that these days we were all in the studio in Pepeşik uh, Dash in Istanbul eight of us, the violin and the drums and guitars and two singers and me and it was an amazing day, an amazing take it's a very difficult thing to do, to get a good take in the studio believe it or not and we, we managed it we did it and I'm very proud of the weird pop track that, that we produced as a result. So not necessarily the music, though I'm perfectly happy with it, um, but that was a very special recording moment. So it sits every time it comes on, skin match version uh, on Spotify and all the rest of it is there as a single. Um, it makes me happy just thinking about that moment that we recorded it in. So Mr. Sean, how do you balance creativity with the technical aspects of composing music? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, 
the recording industry has changed, uh, I am told, over the years to people being able to do things in the bedroom at home. And that's how lots of good things are recorded. Um, I'm sure that's the case. I've never done it that way. I like the um, importance of having a piece that you've planned at home, prepared or written, and going into the studio to an engineer that you don't know, who's kind of usually helping you in there with all the tech that you mentioned. And I, <clears throat> I find that if I get bogged down into the tech, the art of what I'm doing might be lost. And I prefer to just tell the engineer what I think should happen and where and to keep it spontaneous and clicky because um, that's you're going in as, as a maker and a listener. But the engineer sort of just wants to get it right and get all the tech right. And that's good. That's their job. Um, so, yeah, I um, the tech has hugely changed things, especially in terms of marketing. Everybody thinks that things have to sound a certain way and the pro tools that everyone uses and has been using all this century and well into the last one, really. It's all about digital, which has its good parts for convenience, but um, it tends to flatten everything out. So the interesting edges that turn me on in a piece of music, uh, and especially in old stuff, um, is absent. So what I like about Mr. Jack White of the White Stripes is that he's always kept analog, kept, kept the live performance, ignored tech as much as he can, um, there's always an kind of an element of it because now we're in the streaming world, but that doesn't mean the, the streaming world can perfectly handle uh, the live piece of music because the, the streaming world can handle everything as we see we're doing it now. So it's like it can handle absolutely everything going on. So you can still do the live performance and have it out there in the streaming world. So we're coming past digital, even though we're using digital, we're coming past it as a form for production. I think, well, I certainly have anyway. So, Mr. Sean, what role does collaboration play in your work as a composer? Love, love collaboration, um, especially in performance. I'm uh, When it comes to composing the thing itself, I'm better on my own um, because <laughs> um, the honest answer to the question is when you have to compromise ideas in a track, I've never known that to go well. Any compromise with, with another writer usually means that the safest thing survives. And as Mr. Bowie once said, you should kind of go out in, into the ocean as, uh, as far as you can without drowning, but so you just feel a little bit um, perilous. That's the best place to be. And other, I've always been the most sort of perilous in any creative collaboration. So when the other one isn't, it's less great. So... Um, I let the collaboration then happen, but then, especially in Istanbul, there are a couple of uh, singers. Uh, there's a chap called Sarp who did uh, a song called Starting a Fight with Me. Uh, I just got him in because I thought he'd be good at doing that song, and he was. And um, Mr. Babilge uh, Kozebalaban, who was in Directi, did a fantastic job on Didn't You Ever Think You Might Be Wrong? And um, but the best collaborator was Mr. Rod McKee from a band called The Wingmen. is an Irish fella in, a, in an international band in Istanbul uh, who we used to support a lot. He did a song with me called Happenstance, which 14 years later we're about to release as a Christmas single this year <laughs> in a couple of weeks. So um, that's how the streaming revolution works these days. You can record a song and then 14 years later put it out as a single. <laughs> oh, congratulations, Mr. John. So how do you approach 
writing music for different mediums such as film or video games. All right. Well, I've never been asked, to be quite honest, because that's a industry level um, area where they've got people putting together. I think they call it the syncing. Um, and if any fun of it ever came to me and say, hey, we'd love to use skin match version in our uh, slasher film. I'd be like, well, OK, how much are you going to pay me? And that, that's the kind of question that comes along with any sort of offer, which, to be honest, Daniel, hasn't happened. But, you know, anyone listening, do email you and then let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mr. Sean is available, people. So what do you think makes a piece of music successful? Well, um, that's a, a million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I think it's an accident inside the music, um, especially when it comes to pop or when it comes to the modern era. Uh, accidents inside it will make it successful, like, like a strange hook that you weren't expecting. Um, and in the old school, in the sense of eternal music, uh, just the beautiful refrain, like, a, like Mr. Beethoven would his thing was to produce these incredibly beautiful refrains mixed with high drama. And if you can, and that's exactly what Queen did. So um, if you can do both of those, you can be Freddie Mercury or Ludwig van Beethoven just by um, keeping it as unique as you possibly can. If you've heard it before, it's okay. But if it's exactly like something else, you need to push it further. But you only have to push it a little way to get something unique. As Mr. David Bowie showed us, like lots of his things is very derivative coming from other areas of art, but he puts them together to make something brand new and that's interpretive art at its best. So um, I'm not sure if I answered you, but almost. Very well said, Mr. Sean. So how do you handle feedback or criticism of your work? Um, yeah, I like criticism of my work. Um, I I'm not the kind of artist who's very precious because uh I don't take it personally for a start. It's about it, um, if that thing uh, hits that person in a certain way and also they've got their own uh, motivations. So if um, the worst thing anybody's ever said about about my stuff is that um, it, it sort of, uh, sounds a bit like something else, which is not obviously a criticism, but if that person doesn't like, um, for example, the B-52s, then that could be um, construed as a criticism. But because I like the B-52s, it's not a criticism at all. And it's an accidental comparison because you're not going for that. So people are just getting what they can out of it and attempting to communicate that to, to someone else. Um, I handle criticism in the sense that I find it interesting. And if it's really well put and really the person's really listened hard and given you feedback, then it's almost polite to um, think about it, internalize it and go, well, Maybe they got a point, and then perhaps you can do something better next time. But there's no actual uh, better in what I do, as far as I'm concerned. I'm the kind of artist who thinks there's no better, there's just different. So you, the, the next thing you do, it might be something completely different, but it affects somebody else in a completely different way. Incredibly weird area to work in, but I like it that way, you know, subjective. Very well said, Mr. Sean. What are some of your musical goals or aspirations for the future? Hmm. Um, at the moment, because some um, of the pause during kind of COVID uh, era and a certain uh, downtime of a couple of years ago, there's a resurgence afterwards 
coinciding with an amazing new sort of um, the music industry has recovered in the internet world. At first, it terrified it, it destroyed it, destroyed the CDs and all the rest of it, and everyone panicked, end of the industry. Now it's completely come back. Okay, we, we don't get paid anything very well. It's not great, but there are loads and loads of really interesting ways to put your things out there with the social media, being able to tie in the Facebook and the X and the YouTube and the Spotify together, all of those massive things. And I just read a thing this morning where 530 a billion songs were streamed by the Gen Z um, as, a, as a generation in themselves, you know, the kids. And it's like, how wonderful, you know, how, how wonderful is that? And they're getting deep tracks as well. So um, it's not all the, the singles based. I, I personally think this is really healthy and really interesting. And they're having opened ears. And a thing could have been, been released 30 years ago or yesterday to them. And they'll just be turned on by it. So I think it's a really fascinating way to, to reinterpret the music industry now. And it gives me, um, you know, I, I've done a couple of, of, because I've got those six albums and the compilations, I've kind of repackaged a couple of um, the old albums this year in order to reflect that. And I'm going to do another one next year in, in kind of reference to the Innocence Art project that I'm involved with. So I've got an album called uh, Counter Tracks coming out, and I might do a bit of recording next year as well. So um, still doing things here and there. Very well said, Mr. Sean. But before we go on, I'm inviting you to listen to my other podcast, Book One One Review, on my third season. And thank you, Free Spot, for being the number two best book podcast on the planet. Thank you so much. And plus, one more my books are out not only one, but three volumes. Book One One Review, Volume One, highly recommended. Volume 2 is selected. Volume 3 is suggestions. Available on Amazon and leading online bookstores worldwide. So, Mr. Sean, how do you see the role of the composer changing in the future? Mm -hmm. um, I, I hope not too much. I, I hope that the composers themselves, the music makers, will continue to be bold and to, but to not think that they have to perform to everything that an industry says um to be unpolitically incorrect or politically incorrect whichever one because that's where the best art lies and to surprise yourself in not making other people happy um that's not what it's about it's about expressing yourself and to do that in the most real surprising dynamic way they can possibly do and don't worry about the money if the money is going to come it will come in its own time in its own way do the expression first and think about all that other stuff later on um if if if, if they have the tolerance for that and if they don't then perhaps um there's enough musicians out there for them not to bother what are the some contemporary trends or movements in music that you find interesting or exciting um I think that that the trends thing was very. I mean, I, I lost touch with keeping up with uh, movements, probably at the start of this century when I'd seen, you know, kind of grunge become Britpop, become baggy. Well, b before that, and then the new rock revolution, and I could start to see it was kind of all these little little uh, 
the movements were a way to keep keep the keep the music press alive, which then died because of the internet. So when the Melody Maker went down in the early years of the century, um, the movements that they produced seemed to go down somewhat too. There was something called called the new rave, which was interesting because I, I, I was a youngster when the first rave came around. And then there was the new rave with people like Foster the People and MGMT. What I heard was some really cool art rock songs, which I loved and thought were incredibly catchy. And I certainly wouldn't call it the new rave. It wasn't very good the first time and it, um, even worse the second time. So like, I didn't understand the boxing of these things into categories. Um, what I love about Spotify is that if I hear a friend talk about someone like Lord, uh, I'll go, well, whoever is this girl, then whatever, have a listen, and then be absolutely blown away by how good she is and was, you know. And then just just up to recently, everything, everything, though that's not that recent anymore, but about, about to, uh, to 10 years old. Um, there have been a couple of albums that have been released this year. Uh, yes, they're a bit classic, but that doesn't doesn't mean that that's not a good thing. Uh, there's an amazing album with Blur this year, uh, The Ballad of Darren, absolutely on my Spotify every day and and a band called uh, the Royal Blood um, who are from the south coast of England where I am and are an amazing duo just um, on their, their uh, for the fourth album of doing incredibly powerful kind of Queens of the Stone Age style uh, rock it's just an excellent excellent duo so yes they're, they're guitar bands doing all that I attempt to keep in with hip-hop as much as I can but usually the oldest style stuff sticks with me. I, I can't get on with new hip hop. I have tried, but um, the money behind it and the bling and all that, it leaves me cold. And so unfortunately, so I prefer the more sort of socially um, conscious and funky style of um, the old hip hop. So I try and keep up with those old dogs whenever I can as well. So Mr. Sean, how do you think technology has impacted the world of composing uh well as i was sort of saying earlier with the recording in your bedroom uh kind of ability that's been very very impactful for recording studios who are all going to the wall so um not good for them but also good for the punk spirit of recording at home and going there's my single with proper mastering and the proper recording and you don't really know what to do. you just have to go for well is that a good track or not and then a good track or not is is a is a good story but even more important is to have a story around that so they start to feed into the media you need the media then to get on to a catchy song in order for it then to have its legs um all, all those things are connected now to tech tech is just um un to, for better or worse, tech is the overlord of culture right now. So anything that you do um, is automatically available and shareable. You have to make that somehow stick, stick out, stick in people's minds. And doing that is creating stories around things because they might not even get to your good tune because there's so many good tunes out there as well. So you sort of need this USP, unique selling point. Sadly, or for better or worse, I don't know. It's just what it is, you know, but... The amazing thing is that many, many more people are kind of listening to music than they ever have in the history of rock and roll. That is a very, very cool thing. Kids, as always, oldsters, as always, and they're all listening to each other's age uh, 
kind of times. And that is what I love because I don't like the what's new part of, of, of music very much. I like what was released yesterday and what was released 60 years ago and what was written 500 years ago, recorded now. I like all of those being available to me at the same time. And yeah. yeah. So, Mr. Sean, what are the some challenges that composers face in the music industry today? Yeah, I think, like I, like I said, um, uh, if they want to sign a contract with a big kind of uh, marketing agency or like a talent agency, um, there'll be certain conditions that they basically have to listen and obey the 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 PR managers um, because the PR managers want certain uh, have certain contracts with other people which involves money um, and if if an artist has certain politically incorrect or um, just n not approved ideas then they'll be dropped in cancel culture because of expressing them uh, this happened this happened to Royzen Murphy of uh, the Maloko recently and Alice Cooper um, they weren't dropped, but they, they were cancelled by by the means of of the media firestorm. And on the other hand, they get a bunch of attention from the cancellation, which boosts their streams and everything else, and even the concert tickets. So it's a real mixed bag. If you can turn the cancellation to your advantage, <laughs> which is happening more and more, it's like a new thing, then that's actually quite healthy for culture. So that's just it's just just the binary kind of working again. And the reality of of the of of the media culture behind the, these bits of art that we're trying to produce, obviously that's not enough, and it needs all these stories supported with tech. Very well said, Mr. Shan. So, how do you hope your music will be remembered or appreciated by the future generations? Hmm. I sort of suppose it would be in disingenuous to pretend that you don't do these things that they will last forever, outlast you, you know, that's what an artist is really doing. Um, and yeah, um, <laughs> I don't mind how it's remembered because that will be up to the ears of the person kind of listening to it if they can get through the 3 billion, 10 billion other songs written recorded by then <laughs> or whatever's going on and the endless remixing but if, if they do like what you do specifically as an artist and they go and they find those songs whether it be match version or another um for them to understand the soul of what was going on in the early years of the 21st century is kind of a cool thing and um if they can get themselves inside the world of music that you're trying to create you know it's something special of its own and kind of everything that we that we're talking about today i hope that they can hear in the stuff that i've, I've recorded it's about 80 to 100 songs out there that i've kind of professionally published and i'm hoping that inside that they'll get a certain world that will speak to them i guess very well said mr sean so next week let's talk about your albums one by one okay so how many how many albums do you have mr sean well, like I said, we've got we've actually got ten, but in terms of talking about them, we can do six because the other ones are compilations, so it doesn't make sense to talk about compilations much. But happy to talk about the six others for sure. Okay, so Mr. Chan, can you invite our listeners to support your albums? 
yeah um i listen to them and to others on spotify because i find it very uh, easy convenient i don't know if, if we're allowed to do that on your show but i, I guess well, well why not um if, if they go to sean pw parker either on spotify or google that will give them the apple one as well on google which i don't use myself um and all of my albums are published by a company called but believe digital which kind of contact all of the digital big digital servers so um they can uh, get them on there as i say um just do a search of my name on spotify and uh, they will see my albums there in front of them to delve into thank you so much mr sean for your time always daniel always a pleasure Marty Dom people, see you soon. <music>